Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Leila Latif. I'm David Jenkins. And I'm Adam Woodward. On the show this week, Michael Mann and Adam Driver embrace speed and spectacle in Ferrari. Mizayaki returns with a fantastical adaptation of The Boy and the Heron. And finally, Paul King takes on an iconic character's origin story in Wonka. All coming up on Truth and Movies' Little White Lies podcast. So... Good to have you both back. The very beating heart of uh, Little White Lies with Hannah, of course, currently having a lovely time in Berlin. But it's a very exciting time of the year. I mean, not only are the nights drawing in and the Christmas trees are going up, but new issue time. Yeah, I'm, uh, apologies to listeners who had to put up with me on last week's episode as well. But some of the films out this week, I'm I'm big into, and I and I, and I managed to sort of nuzzle nu- nuzzle in there again pre Christmas. So yeah, uh, you know, you can mute mute my sections if you want, but if you're if you're bored, but yeah, apologies on that front for having to hear me hear me two two weeks on the on the trot. Yeah, if you want like a or if you want like a really like harsh takedown of a <laughs> of, of a film, this is not the week to listen to, I suppose. Yeah. This is this is this is pretty solid. Oh, that's but, where I that's where I come in. Oh, okay, yeah. No, you ha- you hate Studio Ghibli. I mean. yeah. <laughs> Finally <laughs> someone studio has to say is it. the Miyazaki <laughs> takedown that 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 you've all been waiting for. I mean, but, you know, certainly film that there's a lot of consensus around is the subject of the new issue. I absolutely adored Poor Things. It's a film I'll watch two, three times. I can't wait to read the new issue. What was it, David, that like made this like a good subject for issue 101? Well, yeah. So, yeah, as you say, the, the, the cover film of issue 101 is Your Gosland, The Most Poor Things with Emma Stone, which has, at time of recording, has just been nominated for, for a bunch of awards, probably the first first round of, of many to come. So we, we, we tried really hard to do The Favourite as a cover film because we love Emma, Olivia Colman, Rachel Weisz, and we, we were thinking, oh, wouldn't it be cool to... This is one of our kind of dream, never, you know, never happened issues, but, like, it just never came to fruition in the end because I don't think we get to, got to see it in time. We're, so we're glad to be able to kind of pick things up with this one, which I think is all, is altogether a stranger, more more kind of darker, more radical film than, uh, than The Favourite. When we when, when we saw it, it was just a kind of it was a sort of instant instant buy, as they say. You know, <laughs> I think that Hannah and I both 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 were at a screening, and we were sort of very blown away by Emma Stone's performance. And you know, I know a lot of listeners will probably have to wait a little bit longer to see it because it's not out in here until February. But I'm sure there'll be many many previews in 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 the interim. But yeah, we were just sort of like it's one of those films, like you know, I think with Yorgos Lanthimos, it was it was sort of there, there's a certain level of expectation that we have from him. And and I think he, you know he probably exceeded it with this film. But Emma Stone, I think that you know her her kind of style of performance and the f- types of films that she tends to be in. This is a very different proposition for her, but also one that plays to all of her strengths that we've seen in the past. And it's a, one of those performances where you th- kind of think, can she go back again? Will we ever see Emma Stone doing like fluffy rom-coms again or light comedy? Because it, it kind of feels that like she's entered that domain of like Daniel Day-Lewis and the, the method, you know, the very macho male method actor crew and is looking to, to make, you know, serious art now. Because she's also made this series, The Curse with Nathan Fielder, which is, I haven't seen, but it's very, you know, I understand it's, you know, it's quite a different tone for what she tends to do. But yeah, I mean, that 
everything sold us in on this one. Yeah, the curse is one of those things where the um, critic score and the audience score is so wildly different because it's, it's a fantastic show, but it's also wildly off-putting. But yeah, no, I agree with you. I can't imagine a future version of Everstone kind of playing second fiddle to the superheroes of Gwen Stacy again. She seems to have moved into a, you know, a meteor new era. I suppose I would say there's there's as much in in poor things for fans of like Easy A as the, as there is for for fans of the favorite or, or or her doing that kind of thing. It's like it has really got like something for everyone. Yeah, we just need to get Elizabeth Olsen back now, and then I think really we can kind of have our our next generation of like millennial female movie stars that are like constantly surprising us and like pushing the boundaries of their craft. I can't really remember much about. Uh, Doctor Strange I think she might be dead maybe she's free now <laughs> well Hannah was just telling me this morning that I didn't I didn't even know this but like Jennifer Lawrence is doing a film with Lynn Ramsey so you know hopefully we'll get get her back too as well so it's looking good looking good for the future wouldn't be nice and as two people who sat side by side watching the third act of that Hunger Games prequel yeah we've earned it we've earned <laughs> Jennifer Lawrence in a in a good role so I'm assuming that um Ballad of Songs and Snakes or whatever is is not going to be kind of topping Little White Lies's favorites of the year Adam but like no and, and any hints as to what it is that's going to be going to be ranked very highly well I mean the, the our, our current Cover film, the mag obviously being out now. Um, Poor things is is in there. I can I can uh, I can reveal is it, I think in the top ten, like ranked ranked quite highly. But yeah, we'll, we'll be revealing the full list. We kind of do it every year, sort of um, pull our collective editorial brains and kind of have a think about what what we like and uh, what what films we think maybe deserve that little bit more of a shout out um, this year. So yeah, I think we've gone with thirty films again, and that, that'll be coming coming out and dropping on on Monday. So yeah, look out for that. I do remember being told that, like, the most unanimous it's been was that everybody agreed to town had to be number one. Like, was it this well, easy and decision? Funny, funny you say that because that was the case. And this year, a very similar thing happened where we were all in agreement, I think, on, on the top film. And I don't think, I think we had kind of like discussed it, you know, individually among the team. And then when it came to actually, thinking of like, oh, what's going to be our sort of top three? Or we, we basically always do our sort of top tens and then we sort of pull that. And um, I think I think someone had suggested this film just on, on the group chat and, uh, and, and it got like, yeah, it got like a hard cosign from like everyone pretty much instantly. So it actually made, made the job a little easier this year. So that was, yeah, that was nice. Just to also mention that if you don't want to wait until Monday to have a, a peep at the top, top 30 if you are a member of club little white lies which you know if you're not why not joking but like yeah you can take a we're gonna drop it tomorrow to to our to our lovely uh club members so they'll get a first sneak peek of of that hopefully they won't just copy and paste it onto onto twitter you know we'll, we'll we'll ask them nicely not to do that but one other clue is that i don't think that our number one has it has featured on any other number ones as featured in the at the top of no. any other t- um, lists that I've seen, so this is this is something new. Yeah, not that I've seen either. Yeah, take that, Martin Scorsese. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. So um, yeah, there's a, a, a big clue there. Well, we should get on to the films. Um, I think all of which have featured at least in the like the top tens of like many places. But first up, it's Ferrari. Join our community of film lovers by becoming a Little White Lies member who receive exclusive perks and an insider's view into the world of Little White Lies while directly supporting our independent film journalism. Search Little White Lies membership via your search engine and click through to our Steady AQ page for a detailed breakdown of the plans. Now on to the movies. In the summer of 1957, Enzo Ferrari, reeling from the death of his son Dino, the deteriorating marriage from his wife Laura and his company's impending bankruptcy, enters his racing team in the 1957 Mille Megilia. So, David, I mean, it's a return for Michael Mann. This is kind of technically not a giant, massive studio film. I mean, we know that because it was given an exemption and they were able to do press. But do you think like Man captures like the spectacle that one would expect from a Ferrari biopic, even with this kind of like slightly more independent spirit? 
Yeah. I mean, a lot of people have asked me what I thought of this film. And the word that I keep reaching for is strange. But then I have to qualify it straight away by saying in a good way. And I think that that's probably where some people people maybe differ on, on it. I guess on paper, it is an independent film in that it was made, made outside of this, this sort of auspices of the studio. But it seemed... When the news was announced, because usually like a lot of films are made independently and studios pick them up for distribution if they feel that they've got the juice and they've got like the star power attached to them. And this one, again, on paper, very much does with Adam Driver, Penelope Cruz, Shalene Woodley as well. And it was it was it was kind of strange to see that like in the UK, Sky were releasing it and then in the US, Neon were releasing it. I mean, both like obviously no you know, not besmirching those distributors at all, but like they, they tend to, those those places tend to do slightly smaller films. So going into it, I think people were maybe sort of like, I, I certainly was asking the question of like, okay, let's, it'd be interesting to see what it was that the studios maybe have like turned them off or uh, they didn't feel it was right for them. And, you know, it takes a, it takes a while to reveal itself, but it, there are things in the film, which we, I don't really want to necessarily go into the details of them, but there's some very there's some material in the film that I can imagine was quite a, an instant turnoff for, for maybe maybe people thinking thinking about whether this film has kind of mass appeal. But I, I I think that like what what it actually proves is that Michael Mann is someone who has the courage of his conviction in terms of like trying to make this film about something. Uh, I feel that like what I have a, I have a kind of personal issue with biopic films. Uh, I feel I feel that like that, that more often than not they're very. They, they follow a very set template. People's lives don't tend to have these cosy, these satisfying dramatic arcs to them. So they often quite episodic and have got sort of themes imposed on them a little bit. And what what's happened here is that instead of big, you know, telling the whole life of Enzo Ferrari, we get like a kind of it's like a year or so where we're focusing on these these many things and. We have the relationship with his wife, who's also the co-director of his company. We have the relationship with his mistress. And we also have the relationship with all his race drivers who are going to be partaking in this thing called the Mille Migle, which is like a long since discontinued uh, Italian road race across the breadth of, of Italy. Very, very, very dangerous road, like, uh, road race. Uh, in which Ferrari and Bugatti were the main rivals. And part of the film is looking at the rivalry between Ferrari and Bugatti. Michael Mann is someone who, you know, he's tapping in all these kind of classical references. And, you know, he's he's really pushing this idea of like, this is a film, this isn't just about this person. I'm not trying to psychoanalyze this person. This is, a, this is about something bigger, about what he represents. This is about the toxic a- aspects of, 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 of this sort of macho, macho type of like CEO and, and of capitalism as well. It's, it's very much a film about the inhumane aspects of capitalism and, and you know, not that, that, that it's kind of like, well, we need, we just need to keep marching forward, whatever happens, whoever, you know, if there are people, if there are people crying, if there are people hurt, then that's, that's what happens in this system. We just got to keep moving. So I, I find it a fascinating film. Yeah, it does feel like a lesser version of this film that was just kind of desperate to psychoanalyze its its protagonist would have had some deep connection between like what happens to him with the loss of his son and how that sort of makes him a better person and more sympathetic to, you know, the real dangers his, you know, these drivers are, are subjecting themselves to. But I love that it, it kind of reminded me of something my grandmother's husband once said to me of like that suffering dignifies no man. And I like that he is able to go through such tragedy and still be so numb towards, um, doing whatever it takes to succeed in this very difficult Absolutely. system. I mean, I think that that, and that's all through driver's performance, which I think, again, it's another, it's another real, really kind of weird issue with biopics about, you know, empathy and sympathy and what, you know, what we think about these characters and how we, how they should be represented. And, you know, there's usually lots of influences at play in, in terms of how these movies are, act as a kind of, as a kind of fi- almost final representation of this person. And this doesn't feel like, the Ferrari family have their kind of paws or, or the Ferrari estate have their paws all over this because the, the representation of Enzo Ferrari is deeply ambiguous and he is a, a, a man of, of deep contrasts and uh, you definitely don't come away from the film feeling that it's kind of, you know, it's, it's a very human performance in a way. Like, you know, it's, he's, you know, he's, 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 he's a very, very flawed person, but with both positive and negative aspects to his 
to his to his being and the film really captures that i think right and for you i mean not to make myself sound basic but um i really liked it when the cars smashed into each other mm-hmm. <laughs> just like did you enjoy that sort of like racing actiony side of things yeah, there there is a good amount of that. I mean, like pro- probably more of the, the the more intimate, as as it were, scenes with the cars. Like there there are some really um, actually quite kind of thrilling bits where you know the camera is almost like locked on on the kind of rear wheel, and uh, as you see the cars like throwing themselves around these impossibly tight bends, and the the sound design is really like cranked up, so you get the full the full kind of force of these these amazing old old motors but i mean having said that I, w- I would not say this is a kind of standard issue you know dad movie it's it's definitely got a bit more going on under the bonnet it you know i i think adam driver is is, is really good in this I, um, I must say he kind of initially just the way he's kind of styled reminded me a little bit of like andrew dice clay i had to kind of park that and and get that out of my head and and then uh and then kind of appreciate kind of what he's doing here because i think he's he, he kind of like is is operating on a, on a really interesting level here and um and yeah, I think, you know, man certainly isn't asking us necessarily to, to sympathise with this guy too much, like like you might get in, in a more kind of soft peddling biopic. But I, I do think the film makes some interesting, let's say, creative choices, which which didn't, didn't quite work for me, um, especially without kind of giving too much away as a kind of really, you know, the, the film builds up to this quite kind of historic or infamous, I should say, moment, which... Um, which is kind of shown in in all its like horrifying glory, uh, and yeah, I, I, th- I think personally I would have maybe preferred for a bit of a less is more uh, approach there. But Adam Driver definitely kind of carries the film. I, I think as well as David was saying, it's interesting to to have a film about this kind of really kind of huge figure in in in, in kind of modern culture and, and actually just to get this kind of small snapshot of of his life. And, and not only that, but it's it's kind of past the point of his of his glory days. I suppose he's he's kind of like you know obviously facing bankruptcy he's still dedicated to motor racing has this really interesting relationship with shailene woodley's character who's kind of you know she she's basically now provided him or or is about to be providing him with an heir uh which which, you know his relationship with penelope cruz's character has has kind of you know he's kind of less reliant on her for that because of the fact their son died so you know he's already thinking about like his legacy and and his kind of next you know his kind of future and ferrari's future yeah, so I think you get some kind of interesting moments and, and the dynamics between them. And, and I do love, I really love actually the flashes of, of, of the kind of old showman and the old like business savvy guru that you see. Like he's, you know, very, very conscious of like how he's portrayed and how Ferrari is represented in, in, the, in the media. And he has this really in- interesting relationship with like the Italian paparazzi. And, you know, he, he kind of wants the focus to be on the cars rather than like all, all the kind of Hollywood or, or like film starlets that are hanging around his drivers. And there, there are some quite funny moments of, like I, I suppose I, I suppose just revealing what what he what he was like as a businessman first and foremost um, as much as you get the kind of the other side of of him and you see a bit more of his personal life I think the stuff that maybe appealed to me a bit more was like him in that mode where he's kind of yeah he's kind of like Mr Ferrari and 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 he's kind of you know up pulling all the strings basically I thought I thought that was quite interesting yeah I do wonder if I was um, somebody who adored Shailene Woodley to wish also there'd been kind of a little bit more focus on the cars because I, I just think she so pales in comparison to what Penelope Cruz is doing in this. It's quite like a stark contrast between the two. Yeah, I think that's fair. I, Penelope Cruz has got the more fun role maybe because she's just kind of smashing things up and brooding and uh, Shailene Woodley's in this, I, I suppose, slightly, you know, she, she's much younger as a character and, and um, uh, you know, much more dependent on on Enzo, and she also sort of ex- exists in this weird bubble, right? I mean, she's kind of kept away, almost like locked up in this in, in this mansion in the hills, and and yeah, I, I think cuts a really kind of like lonely figure throughout. So you know, there, there's there's very obvious kind of like the human cost of this this type of person, this type of like industrialist capitalist megalomaniac, but also you know that 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 applies to kind of the, the well, first and foremost, applies to the people closest to him in his life and I think I think she yeah it would have been nice to see her maybe given a bit more to do but I I wouldn't say she kind of lets the film down in any way so yeah it's a it's a it's a tricky one this I I think there's bits to it I really like and 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 I'm I'm really pleased it's not a sort of standard issue dad movie um you know I I did initially think not not that I think I was worried Michael Mann would ever go down this road but you know is this just going to be another kind of Ford versus Ferrari which 
there's nothing wrong with, but you know, we've kind of been there quite recently. So I do think he is offering something different here, but uh, yeah, mileage may vary. I, I was expecting um, Ron Howard's rush, Ooh. which I did take my dad to. <laughs> <laughs> we had like a perfectly nice time. I remember when Rush came out, all the PRs were basically like, oh, you're not going to believe this. Ron Howard's actually made a good film. <laughs> Even they were surprised. <laughs> Ron Howard seems like such a nice man. I'm kind of <laughs> like, don't. Yeah. Let's, let, let's keep Ron out, Howard out of this. He, he can, he's, you know, he can do what he's, he does. You know what? He's delivering Ron Howard films and God bless him. Like, you know, it's not like there's a, he's ripping the rug out from beneath us. It's interesting what Adam just said about hearing you talk about like him, this focus on him sort of siring an air and having to kind of let go of, of Penelope Cruz's character moved over to uh, Shailene Woodley's character. It's very Napoleon in a way. You know, just, just talking about it now, I'm, I'm sort of feeling there's loads of overlaps with Napoleon and, you know, the kind of, you know, e- including the sort of viscera, I, I guess we should say. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, again, there's there's a bit in the film where it kind of shifts into, into suddenly being like something out of Saving Private Ryan. And I was like, wow, what is going on here? You know, I, 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 just going back to what you were saying, Leila, about Rush, I mean, those films and, and Le Mans 66 or Ford versus Ferrari, obviously you've got these kind of like big starry Chris Hemsworth and Christian Bale actually kind of like driving the cars. And I think that the, conne- the connection between those characters, those protagonists and, and the engines and the cars is, is really interesting. And here, I mean, you do you do kind of see Adam Driver it, it driving, but he's just driving his little kind of run, run around town kind of car. He's not, he's not like properly behind the wheel. So it, it, I think just on that level, it's very, very different to kind of any of those movies we've mentioned yeah as a person that kind of only can identify cars based on whether they're cool not cool and the color that they are um i appreciated not having to get too much into the weeds of like the you know the engineering aspect of what makes the big ones go vroom vroom um we should get some scores on this um david do you want to start you've reviewed it for the mag you've gone with a 444 not to give um a spoiler for print media but <laughs> well yeah no I, same again i mean i'm very i'm very into this film i'm really excited to see it again i was i was pre- pleasantly surprised by it maybe with maybe going into it with a little bit of skepticism for, for the reasons that i sort of mentioned before it's a really you know it's a it's a, a it's a film about cars and ferrari that i'm not convinced likes car you know it, it's not te- it's it's basically telling you that cars are not not cool <laughs> they do bad things to people in many different ways so it's radical on that front um i think that what maybe what lets it down for me is the i don't i don't necessarily i think um Shalene woodley is kind of conspicuous in 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 how different the sort of tone of her performances to everyone else's I've, i found the scenes with her just you know less less engaging and convincing i mean and that's that's compared to the scenes with penelope cruz which are like kind of pure dynamite basically old school melodrama style that like amazing but yeah four, fours across the board I'm, I'm excited to see it again but i'm not sure who, who, who i would show it to necessarily an edgy dad <laughs> yeah, an edgelord dad. <laughs> Adam, what about you? I think I would go four three three for this, possibly. Like it's enjoyable enough. I, there are some creative choices, as I say, that really, really, really didn't work for me. And I think it is ultimately it's it's kind of a more interesting biopic or film, but kind of about Ferrari than you might you might necessarily think. Just, just kind of looking at the poster or, or the trailer. Even I mean, I can imagine some like hardcore racing fans queuing up to see this in their like branded baseball caps and bomber jackets and sitting down and kind of just going, oh, re- realizing kind of what this film is sort of saying about the thing that they love. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of somewhere in between. Uh, to me, this kind of almost like embodies like the 3.5 film. Dave and I have talked about how there are some critics that are one five critics and there are some people that basically like the movies enjoy the creative choices that they make and i'm like yeah it's about a 3.5 it's good i had a good time wouldn't mind watching it again um didn't change my life but admire the work of most of the people involved slightly um, more anticipated even than the latest michael mann next up it's the boy and the heron 
Studio Ghibli's The Boy and the Heron follows a boy called Mahito Maki during the Pacific War who discovers an abandoned tower in the new town after his mother's death and enters a fantastical world with a talking grey heron. Well, I mean, like, that synopsis, like, doesn't really, like, touch upon at all what um, this film is about. It's been 10 years, I believe, since the last Miyazaki film. Worth the wait for you, Adam? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it was it was 10 years ago that he announced he was he was going to be retiring. I think he's announced it several times. Well, yeah, that was I think that was, you know, the more the more, the more recent time kind of following the release of The Wind Rises, which was which, yeah, is like a masterpiece. But I was actually just checking because I, I kind of thought, well, when, when was when was this announced that he was coming out of retirement and kind of making this film? I think we'd reported on it in like 2017. So, you know, it's it's a good sort of six years in, in the making and I'm sure for a good few more years um, even before it was kind of made public. So it, it's been a long old wait, but def- definitely, definitely worth it. I mean, this is like, if you're a fan of Studio Ghibli and, and Miyazaki's kind of career output, I, th- I think this is going to have a lot for you. It's, it, it, it really, it kind of plays like a greatest hits package in like the best possible way, where you're, where it's like all bangers and no filler. Uh, it, it is absolutely gorgeous. It is just gorgeous. That just feels like walking across a desert of minions and super Mario's, only to have your thirst <laughs> quenched by the true beauty that can happen with um, animation. I mean, David, for you, I, I know that you're a big fan of Miyazaki's work, and both like with him and Scorsese, we've had this thing where like you know these people are making films of their 80s, and we just assume that these are like the swan songs. Is that how this felt to you? Sort of like a, a farewell. Well, yeah, I, it's interesting because I thought like the when I saw The Wind Rises when it came out in 2011, you know, he had announced that it was his last film and it was hard to not watch that as a swan song. And the ending of that film has a very kind of or almost what feels like a kind of direct statement about not only his future, but the future of the world. And it felt very much like I think lots of people when you read sort of contemporary reviews of that film, people were writing about it as if it was the last will and testament of, of of Hayao Miyazaki. And then we have this film that comes along, which I think the difference between this and The Wind Rises is, is like, you know, The Wind Rises is, a, is about a real a real person. And it's, you know, it is in, in many ways, you know, it's got a kind of biographical element. So any any kind of suppositions that are personal, you have, you know, you have to kind of infer them. And even though this is like, you know, fictional, it does feel like a much more directly personal film and one that adopts the structure i mean you, you call it the, the the classic miyazaki structure but it's the you know it's the classic kind of european fantasy you know, lewis carroll don't you know if you wander into into this into this darkened place you're gonna you know you're gonna find something strange uh, which so many of his films you know are, are you know that adopt the, a similar structure and yeah, you 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 have this, and the character in this film, you know, it's 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 one of the first male protagonists that he, that he's he's had in a long time. I'm trying to think back, but like Castle in the Sky had a had a male protagonist. Um, there's very few. I mean, he tends to have like you know young girls or female protagonists, and like, oh, I guess Wind Rises was male protagonist as well. And yeah, the lead character of Mahito Maki is much more. Uh, it's a much darker, more taciturn. Someone who's sort of slightly more unwilling and and unable to sort of take in the the sort of suggestions and the things that he's seeing and the and the th- and the and the the things that people are saying to him and the things that are happening to him. It's so difficult to try and praise the plot of this film because it's quite a sort of expressionist flight of fancy journey into a kind of in into the kind of creative you know the creative mind of Hayao Miyazaki and again you know if we talk we're, I think it's interesting that we're talk, talking about heirs and, and making the connection between Ferrari and, and Napoleon because this also is a film about the difficulty of finding someone to sort of part, part, you know, pass a legacy onto and you know de- dealt with in quite a literal way with this kind of overseer figure who who is the sort of i guess sort of final boss character in the film but yeah i think where where this where the sort of basic you know down the rabbit hole structure is going to be familiar to many this this film is is probably the most kind of free free form freewheeling in terms of like the, the 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 turns it takes and the places it kind of drops you into you know it's it's very dreamlike in its kind of forward momentum and how and how it kind of jolt it's almost jolts you from one place to the next whereas i think that the i mean it's it's it's, it's, it's amazing to see that this has done so well at the box office in the US because i would have thought that maybe this was a, a, you know maybe a, a more difficult proposition for for your kind of you know workaday 
Ghibli fan, but but no, people seem to be seem to be really digging it and wanting to um, unpick it. I feel that this is going to be the the subject of loads and loads of like those terrible YouTube videos of uh, explainer videos. What do the what do the parakeets mean in 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 Hayami? What does the ending? What mean? does the yeah. ending mean? The uh. ending explain. I, I bet you there's fifty ending explained movies of this film on YouTube right now. I mean to to offer my own. I mean maybe not on the on the ending ending as it were, but you, you mentioned that final boss character, and and I think he is like a really interesting like metaphor for Miyazaki, right? And his and his kind of legacy and this point where he's basically like sort of reached the end of the road, and this character is sort of looking for someone, not so much like an heir or someone to 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 pass the torch onto, but almost someone to like continue his work, and his work is like essentially like rebuilding the same beautiful incredible world out of these out of these few shapes and these few objects and he's just kind of like doing that repeatedly each day which i, I guess is it, it, you know contained within that there must be some analogy for the kind of process of making an animation like this which must take kind of so much like you know energy and and, and creative thought from you but yeah I, th- I think that like on one level you know it's got that and i think it works in, in a different way to the wind rises equally well as like a swan song but it also i think has that kind of you know really rich vivid kind of fantasy element that that, that ghibli fans especially f- from the kind of more more popular or more well-known films like spirited away and you know house moving castle and I, I think it's definitely kind of working more more you know it's def- it definitely kind of evokes those films i think a lot more strongly than and maybe something like The Wind Rises. It, it also reminds me very much of, and I know I said that it kind of like links up to all his other films, but definitely takes structural cue from My Neighbour Totoro as well, in that it's essentially the catalyst for the story is a, uh, a, a young boy's mother has been killed in bombing raids on Tokyo during during the war, and he he is he has been taken out to the countryside to kind of recoup with his father, who's like a kind of an industrialist and actually a a weapons weapons manufacturer. Actually, is he a weapons manufacturer? Yeah, he is. He's making he's making the kind of he's making parts for planes, and you know it's it's kind of about like. I mean, you know, he has this facets and to actually consider these quite, you know, unthinkable things that are happening, not just in the world, but to our very close relations. And how, how do we piece how do we piece the world together? It's really deep, really moving film about about that. And it's sort of expressing those ideas in a way that, I, you know, I've never really seen before, even even in a Miyazaki film. Yeah, I mean, I, w- I would only add that I do I, I do think it kind of stands alone without that reading. And like part of me does think of like you with these sort of elder statesmen of, of cinema, your Ridley Scott's, your Scorsese's, your Miyazaki of like how strange it must be to go around with everybody sort of having this like slightly morbid interpretation of everything that you do. It's just like, well, you'll be dead soon. And that is like, you know, what we are going to be reading into this film. This is what you want because you'll be gone soon. And you know, I, I, I kind of am reluctant to kind of overly frame it in that way because I think this is such a beautiful film it's such a magical film and you kind of don't need to have that sort of morbid umbrella over it in order to think that it's touching yeah. on something quite profound i totally agree i mean it, you know it's it's interesting because like with someone like scorsese he's done a he did a lot of interviews around killers of the flower moon and he talked you know quite openly about you know his you know his him sort of looking into the abyss of mortality and you know knowing that this you know every film could be his last yeah but i think he did that with the irishman and then he got, i think he also kind of did that with silence but, there was a lot about like guys come see this well, it you might know, be my i mean last. that you know you, uh, miyazaki obviously doesn't do, you know, hasn't really done any interviews on this one but i think you know the intimation is you know that you know he's retiring he's he's of a certain age the period between films has has has, has expanded with each with each one you know it's taken longer for him to get to that kind of precedent that he set for himself but no i i i you know i i think it is a film i would i would agree and say i think it is a film you could watch outside that bubble of 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 being a person of a, a very personal statement because it it is so creative. I think you know you you you, you can just enjoy it on that level of like each scene is going to just give you a surprise or take you somewhere strange. But yeah, the the I I feel that like having that opportunity to kind of impose you know read it as a statement from the director as, as the direct you know this is the purpose of this film. This is what I'm trying to say and this is why I've done it. You know, we'll never know, but we. But it's a fun, interesting way of like critic. You know, criticizing films. Wow. I, I mean, maybe um, 
you know, maybe he, I, I have heard that he is, you know, still hard at work on like new projects and, you know, maybe it'll prove that David Lynch has been doing the same and is also like, you know, this will be the can where the secret David Lynch film drops. <laughs> Who knows? You know, people, people could accomplish incredible things in the sort of twilight years, I suppose. Um, but Adams, you want to go first with your scores in anticipation, enjoyment, and in retrospect? Sure thing. Yeah, I, I, I think it has to be a five for anticipation, maybe a four in enjoyment. I think just just because the film kind of throws so much at you, it's quite a kind of, in the best possible way, quite a kind of overwhelming experience on first watch, I think. But yeah, for a five in retrospect for all the kind of reasons we've given and, and just on the level of it being like, you know, I, I love I love traditional kind of hand drawn cell animation, and and there's some there's some stuff in this which is just like eye wateringly like beautiful. I mean, like even just simple things like the the kind of stream at the end of the garden that that he kind of first properly meets the the, the titular heron, and just the kind of way the water is animated, the, the, the kind of glassiness of that is just like yeah, it's kind of, it kind of like beggars belief actually how how that's how that's actually yeah how that's achieved um, by the animators on this film. I mean, yeah, couldn't agree more. Uh, David, what about you? I mean, it's a good week. Yeah, no, I, I, it's, you know, it's a monumental film, I think. I, I, I think that from when it first screened, even even when it was screening in Japan and the first sort of English, English language or translated reviews were coming out that people were turning around, you know, it, it made it sound like a very obscure film and this kind of very small little noodly kind of work that was not necessarily for audience consumption. And, you know, when I when I eventually saw it, when it played at the London Film Festival, I was just floored by it. Like I was, every, I think, every, he was firing on all cylinders, to use the cliche. And, you know, to add also that I think that, you know, one thing it's worth mentioning is, has a, has a score by his, his old compadre, Joe Hisaishi, who scored all of his films. You know he's he he's done lots of memorable scores. He goes he he tours Miyazaki shows, and I think this is his it, this is his masterpiece. I, I mean I hope this score gets some awards recognition because I think it's it enhances the the, the film, gives it this sort of rhapsodic feel that that is just just tips it over the top for me. But yeah, it's one of the year's best five fives. Oh, yeah, no, I agree with you. This is an absolute masterpiece. I, I was probably with a four coming in. I think ever since like they um, published that late in life sequel to To Kill a Mockingbird, I do one, you know, I'm slightly worried when it, it does feel that like we're milking kind of cultural figures for all of their worth and, you know, whether or not they're going to kind of sully their legacy towards the end. But yeah, five in enjoyment, definitely. And the only thing i will say is 4.9 in retrospect because there's something that feels morbid again <laughs> about giving him a five I mean like you did it farewell and i don't want that like i would like um you know him to be working well into his hundreds uh because he's still innovating studio ghibli's got such a distinct style and this still felt like it was kind of pushing the boundaries of it just just wonderful i can't wait to watch it again i might watch it tonight right next up a film that came with slightly lower expectations it's wonka life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much like unexpected medical costs that's why united healthcare provides health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs learn more at uh1.com Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. 
burrow.com slash ACAST. Wonka sees a young Willy Wonka come to London and seek his fortune and revolutionize the world of chocolate. Unfortunately, he finds himself in a spiral of debt and has to seek help from a precocious young orphan named Noodle and her friends in order to escape indentured servitude and fight back against the score-settling Oompa Loompas and thieves and an unscrupulous chocolate cartel. So, David, I remember when the Wonka trailer dropped. I had so many people texting me about, like, what an absolute disaster it was going to be. I generally had an ex-boyfriend I hadn't spoken to in 15 years text me, being like, what the hell is this? What do you think it's going to be? Because people were so flummoxed by not having Paddington 3, but having a little orange Hugh Grant doing a little dance. Did you come into Wonka thinking it would be any good? Well, we must we must cast our minds back and remember how we've been burned by Hawking trailers in in the past. Because I remember it must have been one of the all time worst face palmy trailers ever was the first Paddington film. And I think when that came out, do you remember in the first Paddington film the sequence where he's like accidentally overflows the bath and then it kind of you know there's all this sort of slapstick stuff and it kind of he ends up riding the bath down the stairs and flooding the house. It was just that sequence on its own. And watching it out of context, it was just a desert. It was just a, a bot, a pure bomb. And you're like, this this film is going to stink up the place. And then the rest is, is history, I guess. And I have to say, when, when I saw the Wonka trailer, I was just like, well, Paul King trailers... I've been stung by them before and he's he's he has defied expectations so I'm on I'm on side still. He's the the fact that he's done not one but two of the greatest family films of the new of the new century means that he get a pass from me for for, for from now on. So yeah, no I, I expectations. I mean I, I think the my expectations were muted elsewhere in that I felt that like doing a doing a kind of Wonka prequel just is an IP cash in film. I mean let's let's face the facts here. And and it's not it's not one that I just I, I I thought that many people were kind of hankering for, but you know I, I feel like they've they with this film they've done the maths, they've they've sort of set it around a kind of unspecified seasonal period, you know it's it, it's a kind of like well if we drop it ahead of Christmas there's some snow in it and you know we could we could do another a, a double drop at Easter because there's lots of like chocolate in it so this is going to be a big win for us so I, I wouldn't go so far as saying the rest is history though because I didn't I don't think this film is on a par with um, the Paddingtons. I think it's on a par with Paddington 1. I mean, I was slightly nervous going into it. I don't think Timothy Chalamet is particularly good. I think everything around him, maybe aside from Keegan-Michael Key, is great. Watching the trailer, I was like, all mentions of the chocolate cartel felt borderline anti-Semitic to me. Um, But like, I think what he does brilliantly is like, there's all these great little British character actors. Patterson Joseph is wonderful. I thought all of the scenes with Rowan Atkinson and his like strange monks were brilliant. Olivia Colman, fantastic. I really, really like Jim Carter as um, the kind of accountant that finds himself in indentured servitude with Wonka. And like that to me was enough to kind of buoy... The rest of it, I suppose. I mean, like, Adam, I know you like this one as well. Pleasant surprise? Yeah, I, I, I did. And, and I, I wholeheartedly agree with your assessment of all the character actors. I think actually to give Timmy his, his dues, you know, he he is like the shining kind of star uh, of, of this film for me. And, and I think possibly doesn't quite carry off the some of the, the bigger kind of showier musical numbers, because we should stress this is this is a kind of musical yeah, despite what the trailer said, it is exactly, a musical. Yeah. Um, I, I guess that's a, a, yeah, a tactic. It's probably been like workshopped and committed, but like people maybe would be put off if they thought there was too much kind of singing and dancing in it. And, and to be fair, it's it's sort of interspersed throughout rather than it being delivered. Like all, all of the dialogue is not kind of sung. But but I actually really enjoyed the music. I, I think the songs aren't quite as as earwormy as as the, as the music from the from the original kind of 1971 Mel Stewart film, which, you know, weirdly, I think this film... You know, it's so steeped in the in the aesthetics of like nostalgia, but musically as well, it borrows heavily. There's there's quite a lot of like r- refrains and callbacks to to uh, a, a few numbers from from that from that 1971 film, especially. Uh, what, what's, Come what's with this? me, and you'll be in a world of yes, pure imagination. Thank you, Layla. So <laughs> there's me there's me saying it's so memorable, but but pure imagination is 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 kind of really heavily leaned on in this film. 
which I don't think is, is necessary to its detriment, but it is interesting that it's, it's a musical number with all these original songs. And frankly, you can't, I can't remember a single one of them now talking about it with you lot, but, but no, Not I th- even I think scrub, to, scrub. They say scrub, scrub a lot and bang brooms. I think I can remember that bit, but, but the songs are okay. I think in the moment, that's the thing is like they, they, they do the job of like delivering this kind of sugar high that, you, that you're craving. And, and Timmy, I think is really good. I would just caveat his performance by saying that like this version of Wonka, and yes, it's a prequel. So maybe there's a bit more creative license being taken, but it's possibly like the least interesting version of this character, younger version of this character they could have written. It is it is much more kind of sanitized and safe compared to the, the Gene Wilder or even like the Johnny Depp version that came later. I, th- I think there's not really any hint of like some, some of the darkness that we know about the character. I, I think, it, it, you know, he's he's kind of, um, he's just a bit squeaky clean, I'd say. And and, the, and there's some stuff which the, which the script has kind of revised from the Roald Dahl, you know, story. So, you know, where before he, he kind of... It, the insinuation is that he's enslaved the, the the Oompa Loompa. Here, you know, there's much. They've kind of toned down the colonial overtones, and it's much more about him kind of rescuing these these enslaved group of people, basically, um, who have kind of been along with him have been kind of, uh, you know, ensnared into this yeah into this kind of life of servitude. So, I think the film gets a few things right there. Like the overall message is is really positive and and quite kind of you know. It, it's one you can kind of get into and, and not, not sort of begrudge it. But I do think th- this version of Willy Wonka is maybe, yeah, it, it is a bit weak, to be honest. i, I got to disagree. I mean, I absolutely hated the Johnny Depp version of this because they just made him like an alien. And I always viewed Willy Wonka having loved the books as being someone who's just been like kicked about by society too much and kind of can't do capitalism with any like real enthusiasm anymore and he's just like sick of all these people trying to steal his chocolates he's sick of greed and stuff and so he just goes off into the world of like his own tiny passions and so it made sense to me that he would have some heart to him rather I think that's than a fa- that's a fair assessment I-, I I think it's just like there's no there's no real hint of it in this so like and actually, I think it's good that the film doesn't doesn't go out of its way to try and set up a sequel. But there feels like there's another film missing, you know, in between this and and the 1971 film, which would maybe like explain where where he went a bit weird or or, or where I mean he has his quirks in this, but yeah, where where he then becomes this kind of reclusive, you know, highly secretive, shady figure who's who's this mad genius, but has this kind of darkness to him as well. I think that's there's, yeah, there's not really a hint of that. In, in this film, which I think would have like tipped it over a bit, a bit more for me. Well, I guess safely say that the head of Hollywood heard that, and we will be getting Wonka two, <laughs> exploring all of those themes within the next kind of two to three years. Can can I just interject with a bit of a, a weird off piece thing? about an observation that's been bugging me and maybe it's something our listeners can help with or maybe you you guys can can chime in but like i think this is in the trailer but there's a scene in in the trailer involving rowan atkinson it's in the film as well and there's something happening and you hear rowan atkinson running away and he says the words run away right and i want to know what that's a reference to because I'm sure that I've got in my head that there is a Rowan Atkinson something Rowan Atkinson has done before and I'm thinking it might be those Barclay car ads that he used to do in the 90s this is showing my showing my age here but like he used to do these themed Barclay card ads in the 90s is it not a Monty Python nod if that would feel quite in keeping with the film's general vibe yeah, the two uh, tributes to this film, Monty Python and uh, and Peep Show. There's about 17 characters from Peep Show in this. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, I I want to know what that that re- that runaway references to because I'm sure it's I'm sure that I'm I I when he said it, I had this kind of déjà vu moment. And and I've actually been trying to watch that I've been, I've been watching the the Barclay card ads on YouTube and I can't find I haven't been able to find it so far. So like if any readers want to, like, you know, tweet us or email us about where that comes from. I love that that's unlocked a, like a core memory for you. That's so, that's so good. It has. And I, I, I literally was spent an hour last night just sort of going down a rabbit hole, like watching all these weird Rowan Atkinson things, trying to find where this has come from. I even ended up just, you know, ended up watching The Christmas Blackadder, which Ooh, is on, on iPlayer. Very sad. So, but like... 
yeah this is this is a, by the by but like yeah it's um i that's you know that's my that's i i want i want to know i really want yeah. to know that if anyone, if anyone can, can talk can help monty me. python <laughs> as, a, as a theory i'm like i would say that is it uh it's a film that's just like seems to be so in love with like british comedy for better or for worse, I thought Matt Lucas was pretty dreadful. But like, yeah, there's it feels like very like there's lots of other little nods, and he really has kind of understood who are some of the kind of hidden gems within this world that deserve some kind of time on the silver screen. Um, but yeah, David, aside from wanting to know the Runaway reference, this Runaway with loads of uh, good scores for you. Um, I would probably say that. I wasn't as taken by this film as I, w- I, I was hoping to be. It, it felt a little bit like, I know this is this is terrible to say, but like, you know, I think I'd read about that there was sort of reshoots and some studio interference. And like, for me, there were some elements of it that kind of played like that, that felt a little bit disjointed. I felt the character of, of Noodle, who is um, Willy Wonka's kind of um, foil, it, it was a bit underwritten and, and her kind of, how it ended felt like a bit strange to me. Yeah, it was. I, I thought for almost for every for every good bit, there was a bit that didn't work. So it's probably a, it's probably threes across the board. You know, I'd I'd happily sit and watch this again. My, I took my daughter, my five year old daughter, to see it, and she loved it. She also loved the the, the Mel Stewart ones. She was you know she's very into you know with, with the Wonka brand now. So, but I haven't I haven't shown her the Tim Burton one. But yeah, it's. Uh, the, I love both the Paddingtons and this was just not, you know, he's, he, he set the bar too high for himself, I think. And this one just didn't. didn't I love in a week of Michael Mann and uh, Miyazaki that the person with hubris setting the bar too high was Paul King. <laughs> Adam, what about you? What are your scores? <laughs> well, I think I gave this four, four, four for the, for the, for the mag for reviewing. And actually, I think I pretty much stand by that. I'd say it's definitely a film, which, which, which really got me more in the moment. I mean, not just the kind of musical numbers, but just throwing in little little character, uh, you know, little characters and cameos, and like Sally Hawkins rocks up for a bit, and I mean she barely says anything, but she completely like you know left me like a sobbing wreck. So so you know, Paul King like he, he knows how to use his secret weapons. I mean, we didn't even talk about Hugh Grant really, but he he probably is like MVP in this. Yeah, I'd call him chaotic neutral. There you go. I'd say maybe like in, in now I'm like a, a you know a week or so um, away from it. I'd say maybe like if we're gonna if we're gonna go there like a three point nine in enjoyment and that and that point is just because for a film about like chocolate, none of the chocolates that appear in the film look remotely edible or appetizing. I don't know if that's just me. I, I didn't. I didn't come away thinking oh, I need to rush to the nearest store and get like a bar of dairy milk. It, it was. It was kind of strange, actually. Everything looked very synthetic. And then, in retrospect, to point off just because there's a few bits I think in the script that don't really work. And and uh, yeah, I could have probably done without like the fat jokes as well. Yeah. Oh my god, I'm so with you with the fat jokes. I have no idea why they thought it was a good idea to go that way. They're absolutely befuddling. And, you know, Keegan-Michael Key, I think, is a great comic performer. So, like, why that's what they kind of saddled him with seems, like, utterly bizarre. Especially to kind of push it as far as they do, I think. Yeah. And, I mean, it's it's. I would say Keegan-Michael Key has the same problem as Matt Lucas, where it's just like, oh, we came up with one joke and just keep doing it every 15 minutes but still for me i think this is probably a three four four i was not that bothered about going to the earliest screening but my daughter was desperate to go and see it i saw it with her she absolutely adored it she's been singing um 12 silver sterlings in my pocket not entirely sure why the currency is different in this film but hey ho and you know that moment where Noodle gets her sort of happy ever after, like, you know, she just reached over and hugged me and like, you know, was weeping gently. And yeah, thanks, Paul King, for that. Like, it's, it, it, it was a really beautiful moment and just, yeah, very pleasantly surprised. So, David, you're going to go first. What is your non-movie recommendation for this week? I guess this is a little bit old school, but like I'm going to go back on back to the gaming Shocker. <laughs> side of things. Yes, my my secret my secret hidden passion. I think what is considered one of the greatest games of all time is called Resident Evil Four. You, you you may have encountered this world in the in in through the P, Paul W S Anderson film saga, 
but um the games are generally considered you know it's one of the sort of most sturdy franchises going and number four is the is like the peak uh and and it, it was in in when it came out it was this you know it was considered revolutionary and it is an it is an incredible game so they've they've basically done this thing where they there's levels of of, of this where they you can remaster a game which means you just sort of like give it a bit of a spit shine but then you can remake the game where you essentially kind of start from scratch using the exact same template and story and movements, but you're kind of sanding things down and 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 expanding on some elements as well. And there's a recently made remake of Resident Evil 4. And it's kind of, it's incredible. It's like playing the, it's playing like the most cheesy, fun zombie movie with like the most kind of cackling baddies and an awesome kind of like oversized monsters. And the character you play is this um, action hero called Leon, who's got this kind of, I don't even know how you describe his hair, but it's kind of like floppy side parting, like blonde and and wearing a kind of skin tight vest. And it's just so it's, I'm just, I played the original, but like this, it's just so much fun doing this remake. And uh, one one of the, the main things they've changed is like the storyline is you're, you're saving the president's daughter, this woman called Ashley. And in the version that came out in like, I think it was like 2004 or something, the Ashley character was this kind of like completely helpless blonde yelping slightly bimbo-ish woman who you know and it was all about the man saving the damsel and this new version you know ashley has far more kind of agency and you know her dialogue is much is is so much better and you know she 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 has this whole section of the of the game where you kind of take control of her as well and yeah it's it's you know it's kind of modernized for the better i think but yeah no i'm having i'm having i'm i'm not quite at the end but i'm having I'm having fun playing that. I do feel that this, one day I will dive into this entire world, but I, I worry that it's going to consume every moment of my life forevermore. So a bit hesitant. It, seeing as you watch basically everything on TV as well as every film, I, I, I can't, and read and podcast, listen to every podcast and read every book. I don't know when you're going to do this. Well, you know, there are those crucial hours between 2 and 4 a.m. that I'm not utilising. So, you know, we could, we, we could take a look-see at those. Um, Adam, what about you? What's your non-movie recommendation? Just quickly, David, have you ever played... Do you remember a video game from, like, the early noughties called Perfect Dark? Did you ever play that? I didn't know. I know. I know. I know it. It's like it was like the sequel to to yeah. To it was like made by the it? same team. I have played Goldeneye. Same. Sorry, that's one. There you go. But it's like it's sort of using the same engine. I think so. They kind of look a bit similar, but it, but it was like quite. It was deemed to be quite. Um, I mean, it's post Tomb Raider, but for for the genre, it, it has like a female protagonist. It's, it just kind of reminded me what you were saying about um, a moment ago. But anyway, that's not my recommendation. Well, I've I've been I've been kind of like as 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 well as doing like films of the year, thinking of of lists and stuff. I've been thinking of like my like favorite albums of the year, just like for, for absolutely really no one's benefit other than my own, really. But so I was gonna I was gonna drop a couple of album wrecks if that's if that's permitted. Uh, uh, yeah, just a couple of things I've like really enjoyed this year. The new Matthew Housel record, it's called An Ever Changing View. Very kind of like beautiful uh fluty jazz uh and there's an, another really really great record from from a bit earlier this year called northern flame um which is by a, amazing band name emma johnson's gravy boat yeah re- really recommend both of those that sounds brilliant um yeah these are two areas in which i have deficits so it's kind of nice that i will be able to at least kind of maybe pretend that i know about these things and then I can sound cool when I do small talk and people ask me about music and or video games. Um, but if you've got thoughts on these films, you can email truthandmovies at tcolondon.com or tweet us at LWLies. Next week, it's my personal favourite episode of the year. Well, perhaps the second favourite after the one I get to record from an Italian beach. The Little White Lies will be taking us through their picks for the very best films of 2023. Thanks very much for tuning in. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Truth and Movies is hosted by me, Leila Latif, and my guests this week were David Jenkins and Adam Woodward. The podcast is produced by TCO London and edited by Bob Stankus. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.